Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Research Goes Viral. Uh, I am the host for today. My name is Stephen Devlin. I'm a PhD student here at the Centre for Virus Research and I'm surrounded by a plethora of guests who are going to uh, introduce themselves in just a moment. Um, but today we're discussing a really exciting paper. Um, and I know you're in the room with me, but genuinely did enjoy reading this paper. I thought it was beautiful, really nicely laid out, told a great story. And I'm very excited to do a deep dive with you today. Um, but before we get into that, if we just go around the room and just introduce ourselves, uh, our position and kind of what we did in relation to the paper. And if we start with yourself. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks for listening. I'm Antonia Ho. I am an infectious disease clinician and a clinical senior lecturer at the CVR. Um, and I led the research investigation um, for, for, this, for this paper. My name is Vanessa Herder and I work as an experimental pathologist. So my topic is looking into the morphology, how do the cells look like, and we also work on where the virus in the cells actually is located to give it in a con context, basically, in the disease. Yeah. Oh, uh, my name is Richard Orton. I'm a biomedician. Uh, I was involved in analysing the sequencing data, the metagenomic sequencing data, to identify what viruses were present in cases versus controls. Perfect. Um, so yeah, welcome everyone. Thank you for, for agreeing to sit down and talk with me today. Um, so as I say, I, I think thought it was a great paper. I thought it was a really uh, compelling story that was laid out and I think the data is fantastic as well. And just reading through it, I was, uh, yeah, Great paper. Uh, so what is the paper we're talking about? Well, it is called, uh, or it's titled rather, uh, Adeno-Associated Virus 2 Infection in Children with Non-A to E Hepatitis. Um, and so to get a kind of background in what led up to this paper, um, if we go back to April 2022, um, and basically a collection of children presented at clinic with uh, hepatitis. And that, you know, was the start of this whole investigation. So do you want to talk us through kind of how that all started? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this actually started on the 31st of March 2022, when a very astute um, pediatric um, liver specialist um, called Rachel Taylor, who's one of the first authors of the paper, she um, noticed a kind of cluster of children who presented with jaundice. So yellowing of the skin um, and when they were admitted to hospital they find that they had very high levels of um, liver inflammation so that's what we call hepatitis um, and normally in an average year you would notice maybe two or three of these cases where you have hepatitis but the cause, underlying cause isn't found so you know there's you usually screen people for the kind of most common causes usually either a virus or um, drug toxin or autoimmune which is when your body thinks that um, your your organ is foreign and, and it attacks it so you have a kind of abnormal immune response but none of these children were had any of these common causes so um, she had noticed at least five cases so alerted Public Health Scotland and they actually uh, contacted the other liver units and also found similar cases in young children and and therefore they thought oh there's something abnormal here. So, you know, an outbreak investigation was in, uh, instituted. Um, Public Health Scotland was involved and um, UKHSA as well, because mm -hmm. it, it turned out that it didn't just involve Scotland. There were cases um, across all four nations. Mm -hmm. um, and I lead the recruitment for the ISRIC, uh, the WHO ISRIC CCP UK, the Clinical mm -hmm. Characterization Protocol Study, where we activate for any emerging outbreak to allow us to recruit patients and take research samples and do tests that are not routinely available, for example, like the sequencing. So mm -hmm. this is how this investigation started. Perfect. And so it's Rick, that's uh, the International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging Infections Consortium, if I've read correctly. Um, and so who, who forms that body and how does that sort of operate um, on a ground level? So Isaric was set up really um, after the the 2009 influenza H1N1 pandemic um, because they noticed that, you know, when there is an outbreak, everything is quite chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's kind of scrambling to understand a new disease. 
Um, and there's no kind of, in order for people to have standardized comparison, you kind of need a protocol, A, that is approved in advance so you can activate quickly because any one of us who've done studies that involves recruiting patients, ethics approval take months to do, by which time, you know, it's it takes such a long time that you often yeah. miss half the cases. But also having a standardized protocol that can be used for any emerging infection and, and adapted to that disease, then it means that you can compare it between different study sites, different geographical locations as well. Um, and so this was set up and it's been activated for a number of emerging outbreaks, including uh, monkeypox, mm -hmm. Zika virus, um, MERS coronavirus, and most recently for COVID-19 as well. Mm. Um, so in the UK, we recruited, I think, over 300,000 patients for covid um, and just gives you a power to really understand new diseases, how they impact on the body, immune response, virology, and and it allows just obtaining data itself, but also allows you to obtain kind of biological samples. So, you know, we, um, the, you know, Dr. Taylor alerted Public Health Scotland on the 31st of March. Mm -hmm. We activated on the 2nd of April mm -hmm. and recruited our first patients within a week. And in fact, the first samples from from um, these cases were sequenced, I think, by the 7th of April. So within one week, we were we had kind of first tests that were done wow. on these cases. So it really kind of show highlights how important um, studies like this yeah. are. That you know, speed is of the essence, particularly when we're talking about children who are really sick with hepatitis, and a number of them. Not only were they admitted to hospital, but um, a lot of them were very sick mm. and. Um, 15 children in in the UK required a liver transplant which yeah. is very serious yeah absolutely and I think that's an important point to hit on there is the speed of that response because even getting you know normal lab work done takes <laughs> can take a wee bit longer than a week but that's incredibly quick and that's as you say very important when you've got these new emerging things coming out you need to get as much information generated as quickly as possible so you can formulate some sort of a plan to 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 uh, you know, what are the next steps? And so that kind of leads on to the next question of, so you got these samples uh, almost within two days and then kind of what's the next step in the ISREC protocol of generating, you know, data and looking at these samples? Yeah, so, I mean, apart from analysing samples, you have to try and understand, you know, first of all, for a kind of outbreak investigation, you need a case definition. Mm -hmm. So the kind of understanding the epidemiology. So we knew that the majority of children were under the age of 10. So the kind of UK four nations um, criteria for including, we included children under 10. The first cases, I think, dated back to March. So we we kind of put a timeline that, you know, most of it was children presenting with this syndrome from the beginning of January. Um, we noticed that the degree of inflammation were quite high. Mm -hmm. So normally your, your liver enzymes, we test AST and ALT, should be less than 50. Mm -hmm. And these children, they were up to 2,000. So it, it's really marked. And I'm not a pediatrician, but mm -hmm. I've been told by Dr. Taylor and other pediatricians that that degree of liver inflammation is very, very abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, you then do a big, very detailed workup. So, you you know, the routine clinical tests, not even just the, the research investigations, you screen for all the causes that I mentioned earlier for, mm -hmm. for viruses um, like viral hepatitis, A, B, C, E, um, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes mm -hmm. viruses, um, screen for kind of drug exposure. But you also do a very detailed questionnaire, particularly, mm -hmm. we call it a kind of a trolling questionnaire to see if there are any other particular um, risk factors or exposures, for example, foodstuffs, mm -hmm. um, um, could be new medication or travel, any geographical um and, and you look for whether any kind of siblings are involved, mm -hmm. people from a particular geographic location. And really nothing was turning up for, for, for these children, um, just that they were mostly young children. Yeah. Majority of them didn't have any underlying health condition. Um, so you kind of cast a very wide net, mm -hmm. test for lots of things and don't make any assumptions. Mm -hmm. 
but it was felt that an infectious pathology was most likely, which is how we kind of progress very quickly to sequencing um, mm -hmm. because, you know, that allows us not to make any assumptions about what, you know, yeah. is the underlying bug. And I think Richard can go into a bit more detail about mm -hmm. metagenomic sequencing. But um, and this was quickly agreed because we had all these research samples that sequencing was top of that list of yeah. a battery of tests that we did. Okay, perfect. And uh, that's going to lead us quite nicely into our next section where we talk about metagenomic sequencing. Now, I'll put my hands up. I am not an expert in metagenomic sequencing, but we have a man here who is. Um, so kind of what was the... Um, tell us a wee bit more about the process that you undertook when you received those samples and, and, and how that worked. Okay, so I'm, I'm on the computational side of it. So there's a whole enormous bit of lab work that has to go on first, so I'll give you my sort of understanding of it. Apologies to everyone in the room. <laughs> um, so once, once you get the, the sample, uh, and I think the sample that they normally uh, receive is nucleic acid, so either RNA or DNA. Uh, it's received into the sequencing network, or probably to the biobank, and then we're going sequencing that. And then essentially what metagenomics is, is you're trying to sequence everything that's in the sample, really. Um, but there is a bit of a, you know, a scale issue. You can't sequence every single piece of DNA in there because it's just far too much of it. So you are essentially just taking a sub-sample of that. So as a result of that, sometimes metagenomics you know, may miss something that's a really low level. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a completely foolproof um, you know, way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, if something's there at you know, high, a high frequency or yeah. you know, a reasonable frequency, then metagenomics should identify it. Should, what you're doing is you're just sequencing all of the either DNA or RNA that's in the sample, and then once you've got all that sequence data, you can, you can compare it to databases of things. Um, so the guys in the, in the genomics lab, uh, they'll get the sample and then it has to go through what's called library preparation, <laughs> where it's sort of you're fragmenting the DNA and RNA to the correct size, it goes through lots of checks to check it's good quality, there's kind of uh, adapters ligated onto the ends, <laughs> and that gets put into the sequencing machine which essentially sequences all these pieces of DNA and RNA, which is by that point it's DNA, um, and then which creates all this sequence data, expanded to us in, in bioinformatics. Um, so what we get as a kind of raw input is just lots and lots of typically short DNA sequences, millions and millions for each sample. Um, so the objective then is to kind of say, well, what, what is all this DNA? Is it just all the human host? Is it is there a virus in there, which is bacteria or something like that? Um, so at the very start, I think we had five, five, five patients, five cases, I think, in the very first row. Mm -hmm. So we had five samples, and they went through an RNA library preparation and then also a DNA library preparation just to cover, cover the bases. Mm -hmm. And maybe there was something that was you know, an RNA virus, a DNA virus, just to cover it all. Um, so we sequenced that. You know, we kind of analyze the results. Uh, so this was this was what Tony was saying about this was quite quick. I mean, this was like within a week. So this was sort of, you know, our first attempt to see what was in there, uh, and then kind of pretty much straight away, within a few hours, you could see that the only thing that the samples had in common was this virus called AAV2, uh, which we'll go on to yeah. you know, later, <laughs> later on. Uh, but there wasn't really anything else in there. Uh, in terms of viruses, certainly, um, certainly in all of the samples, there's nothing shared apart from that AAV2. Uh, there was hints of like other viruses in there. One had a, a hint of an adenovirus, mm -hmm. which before we started was was hinted at this this could be the cause of it. Which is adenovirus 41 is what uh, people have thought might be involved. There was sort of a hint of that in one sample. There was kind of herpes virus hints here and there, um, but certainly at that first run. AV2 jumped out, and yeah, I certainly had never done anything with AV2 before, so everyone was immediately Googling it, what on earth is AV2? <laughs> um, but then, and then that, that initial five sample run led to then get more samples and more checking, and then trying to get controls in to see if, because it could have been that AV2 was just you know, everyone in the population, yeah. and therefore wasn't important. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, AV2 typically is asymptomatic, so that must have been. Um, 
it, it doesn't usually cause pathology, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, typically. I mean, I think most people didn't know, including myself, knew virtually next to nothing about mm-hmm. AAV2, which stands for Adeno-Associated Virus 2. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's the from the genus kind of Dependo parvovirus. Mm-hmm. The, the, why it's called Dependo, it's because it it cannot replicate by itself mm-hmm. it needs a helper virus um in order to replicate um in itself and helper virus is typically given that it's called adeno associated virus mm-hmm. adenovirus is one such helper virus there are other different other types of helper viruses including um herpes viruses human papilloma virus mm-hmm. bocca virus as well but it does require co-infection with another virus in order for it to to multiply. It's not known um, to cause human disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably best known for being a vector for gene therapy, which is used mm-hmm. a lot in in children. Um, and although it's not really widely described in literature, actually, people who work or give gene therapy mm-hmm. recognize that they do see hepatitis um yeah. and 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 quite frequently they have to treat prophylactically um with steroids um and there have been rare cases of severe hepatitis associated with av vectored um gene therapy ah, okay um so was that kind of a, a, a light bulb moment when you when you saw that flag up or was that just uh you know mm, Let's let's pin that to one side and, and... I think it was a bit of a light bulb. It was a light bulb, but it was a very cautious light. Yeah, yeah. there was a bit of head scratching, and yeah. and you always have to be, um, you know, a bit cautious about what you find. Like, can it be explained biologically? Mm-hmm. Has someone ever described that before? Could it be one of the controls? Because we a lot of the initial clinical samples we got were from um, samples at the the West of Scotland Specialist Virology Centre and they'd done the extraction uh, um, for us and we wondered whether it was actually a control. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually found it in all nine. So we we ultimately spent a lot of time doing the detailed metagenomics in nine patients mm-hmm. and we found it in plasma of all nine cases and also liver samples from four out of the nine patients. So that gave a pretty strong signal. Mm-hmm. As Richard said, we also found adenovirus, I think, in six out of the nine mm-hmm. cases. And in the kind of routine lab testing, adenovirus was probably one of the most common viruses detected by routine samples. So that's usually PCR Mm -hmm. in respiratory samples or blood samples. Mm -hmm. Um, But not all children had it. And it might just be that because we were picking up patients in March to to April, uh, Mm -hmm. July time, it may be just that we were picking up what was circulating at the time and had nothing to do with it. So in order to say whether this AAV2 is important. You need to recruit controls. Um, so controls, uh, we, we ended up recruiting four different types of controls. So um, ideally, you want them to be matched by age, mm-hmm. by time, by geographical area. But, you know, we're talking about blood and liver samples, which healthy children don't usually have that yeah. taken routinely. Adults more more commonly, particularly blood samples. Um, so we recruited um, four different groups of control. Groups one to three were from a study called Diamonds, mm-hmm. which um, had been recruiting since the beginning of 2020 to look at causes and molecular signatures of children with fever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were lucky. So group one are healthy children to see whether you would routinely find AAV2 in healthy mm-hmm. kids. Group two were um, children who had adenovirus infection but didn't have hepatitis. Mm-hmm. So you know, would you find AV2 in kids that have adenovirus? It's just something that we never tested for AV2 before. The third group were children that had hepatitis for other causes, not adenovirus, Mm -hmm. to see, you know, is it just something that happens if you have hepatitis and you reactivate Mm -hmm. AV2? And the fourth group, which is really important because the first three groups of children were not necessarily recruited at the same time as our cases, Um, and we wanted to see, you know, it was AV2 just circulating in, in children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we recruited what we call contemporaneous controls, controls at the same time in the same age group and in Scotland. So we had not many, but we had mm-hmm. 16 um, samples from children that 
were attending hospital in, in March and April at mm -hmm. the same time as cases to see if we can find AAV2 in those. And essentially, we didn't find AAV2 mm -hmm. in in any of the group one and two controls or any group three controls. Um, we did find, I think, four out of 16 of the contemporaneous mm -hmm. Scottish controls suggesting that AAV2 was circulating in mm -hmm. Scotland around that time, but that high levels of AAV2 um, is not common. Uh, it's mm -hmm. certainly not in healthy children or children who have adenovirus infection that without hepatitis or hepatitis for other reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay, because uh, one thing I thought about paper in general is that it was really well controlled. Um, and I can understand the rationale behind each of the control groups very like easily to read it. You know, as someone who's not a, a you know pediatrician or you know <laughs> someone who studies these things. Um, so when you talk about the case control, that is essentially just comparing your cases where you say, right, this is the uh, epidemiological pathological uh, occurrence that we're looking to study, and then you're controlling that with other members of the population who have certain features of that, but not right. all of the features, mm -hmm. so you can narrow it down. So again, that's the next point of evidence, there, is that when you start thinking, okay, AAV2, this is starting to look like this might be the causative agent, or um, when does that really start to become like, I think, you know, this might yeah, be the... I think you just gradually build layers of evidence, right? So when we talked about the metagenomic sequencing, that's only in nine cases. Mm -hmm which doesn't give you much power to say anything. So by this point, we had recruited over 30 cases. So we basically expanded our investigation. Um, metagenomic sequencing is is is, is laborious mm -hmm. and needs very lot of specialist um, techniques, but it's also very expensive. Mm -hmm. So once you have a pathogen of interest, you can then develop a molecular cheaper test like a PCR. Yeah. Um, so what we did was we switched to PCR and did AAV2 PCR in 32 cases. So the paper mm -hmm. mostly includes 32 cases and 74 controls, which is mm -hmm. from the four groups. Um, and we found AAV2 in 26 out of 32. Um, so that is 81% of cases. Mm -hmm. And remember that the definition for a case is, is quite broad. It's just a children under the age of 10 um, presenting from the 1st of January 2022 with deranged liver function above 500 of AST or ALT. So you will inevitably pick up some that are not cases like yeah. of, of this kind of phenotype. Mm -hmm. um, but in the controls, we only found it in five out of 74, so only 7% of, of controls. So it's much more um, prevalent mm -hmm. in cases. So, but comparing 81% and 7% doesn't give you the, the, you know, all the information. We also did viral load. Mm -hmm. So basically, we found that the cases of those that are AV2 positive had much, much higher viral loads, both in the blood and mm -hmm. also in the liver. We also looked at um, the ISAREC protocol allows us to take longitudinal samples. Mm -hmm. So in the in the patients where we have longitudinal samples, we're able to measure viral load over time. And we basically show that, you know, a high levels of AV, AAV2 doesn't hang around in the blood mm -hmm. and, and high levels seem to coincide. Um, with also very high levels of liver inflammation. That mm. So maybe when the patients are presenting with the jaundice um, and the liver inflammation, that's also maybe when um, AAV2 has, has very high viral levels. Mm -hmm. We then also looked at serology because that mm. gives us, you know, look at antibody response. So um, in the patients where we had residual blood left over, we did um, IgM and IgG. Mm -hmm. And we found that, you know, two thirds of the patients, I think we had, um, uh, we had enough blood for I think 23 out of the 32 mm -hmm. patients and two thirds of them were IgM positive. And you would think all of those should be IgM positive. Mm -hmm. But when we looked at those that were IgM negative, we found that four of them had their blood taken within three days of illness onset. So mm -hmm. it's really important to have the clinical information, not just a sample, you yeah. know, that the detailed history, and, and I can kind of expand on that a little bit later. Um, and then two of the cases that were also IgM negative, 
um, had presented 77 days earlier, so mm-hmm. 11 weeks sooner. That maybe by that time you'd lost your kind of acute um, mm-hmm. IgM, um, and quite a lot of them, 91% of them were IgG positive. So at this point, you now have higher proportion of cases that have AAV2. Those that are positive in cases have much higher viral load levels. Mm-hmm. They're also demonstrating serological evidence of acute infection. But then we also looked within the liver as well, because mm-hmm. that is clearly where the pathology is. Yep. And and Vanessa can tell you all about what we did with the liver samples You're very that we good had. At this. this is literally where I was going to go to next. Go. Is... <laughs> so, Vanessa, uh, so you were uh, doing some histopathology and some immunohistochemistry. Um, and from what I can see in the paper, um, you've got some lovely uh, images of the liver in there. Um, and so... My question kind of I think is the first one that anyone would would think of when they're when they're looking at this study is how does the histopathology differ in these cases or does it even differ um, from these children who are experiencing this uh, AAV2 associated hepatitis versus someone who perhaps has a hepatitis C virus or some other form of, of liver disease is there any differences or and this is I think the most important for me it was also the most interesting question because the first sample we received for histopathology was one of the patients who had the explant. So I had the sample from the explant and the first look at the section showed that there are specific cells next to severe inflammation and bulgar proliferation. The hepatocytes showed a very ballooning phenotype. The cells were enlarged and they had a foamy cytoplasm. And this was the first thing which was very, very obvious. And then um, the question was, when we see this in this patient where uh, the liver was transplanted, is this a phenotype which is true for all of the patients who are affected? Or is this something which is only specific for this patient? And it's very important to prove this because if we have a viral infection, we always want to see a specific phenotype um, which comes with it as a proof of principle, basically. So we had this and the question in the room was, after this first patient, is this true for all? And then we had more samples, and the other samples were as far um, this were not explant livers. These were all a biopsy, so the sample was smaller, and the degree of inflammation and changes were not as severe. So, but the cells we were after were also present in the other affected ones. So it has a very specific phenotypes next to the inflammation, and depending on the degree of severity, we have inflammation. So the cells with the ballooning phenotype were always there in affected patients, and the inflammation, uh, the degree of inflammation was varying basically, and that was that was interesting and which we wanted to prove with more samples during this study basically. And so the just to check my own understanding, you're saying that the level of uh, you know damage, if you want to call it that, seen within the liver mm-hmm. corresponded with the. Uh, was it the the viral titer or or what was it correlating to or or um with this but with a very very severe it needed a transplant right yeah. so um some of the patients who had uh, biopsies they had mild inflammation they were also severely ill because the liver cells showed morphology which is an impairment of liver function however the damage was not as severe as in the explant livers. So um, th- this, this makes the difference. So we had in the explant liver, the patient has been treated for a longer time. We can see this in the morphology of the liver. There are cells which are only there if the liver is ill for longer. And this was very obvious in this particular um, case. And then the next question, which was really, really interesting for us, because as you have heard before, metagenomics, PCR, uh, could show AAV2 nucleic acid in the blood and also in the liver. What was important for us to show where in the liver is the virus, what is uh, which cell is affected, and the hypothesis before doing the experiment was, okay, the hypothesis is the hepatocytes show the ballooning phenotype. So this is something what we can see basically and which is evident and which you can show everyone. Are these actually also the cells which are positive for the virus? Because for the blood PCR and the liver PCR, we cannot locate where in the cell is the virus. Is it actually the hepatocyte 
or is it any other cell type? For example, the bile ducts, is it the inflammatory cells? So we ordered probes to detect this particular uh, sequence of uh, the AAV2 in order to find out where exactly is the, is the virus located. And this was a very exciting experiment. And I can clearly remember that my boss uh, sent me a Teams message every five minutes. Yes. And I said, do you have the results? Do you have the results? And the first experiment we did, and um, as you know, with new diseases and new experiments, you never know, even if you include all the controls, is this working? So the positive control shows basically a ubiquitous um, expressed gene. This worked. I checked this first. So I know the experiment did work, but is the virus actually there? And is the probe able to detect uh, the genes? Yes, and it was. It was the most beautiful um, detection I think I've ever done because the signal was so clear <laughs> and it was in two different cell types. So it was not only the hepatocytes with the um, ballooning phenotype, it was also in some of the endothelial cells of arterial cell, uh, endothelial cells of arteria in the liver. So we had two cell types which um, are positive mm -hmm. for uh, virus signal, which was a very good result. And then we added more and more patients to the study because it's important if it's true for one, does not necessarily mean it's true also for the whole cohort. Mm -hmm. So all the patients we added showed that AAB2 um, RNA could, show, could be detected in uh, the hepatocytes and the endothelial cells. Thing. Yeah, um, and I must admit, the images are very That's nice cool. images. Not from someone who is uh, a good wallpaper. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I was very like, oh, these are some nice images. Um, so you see this ballooning phenotype within these hepatocytes. Is there any thought as to sort of the molecular um, cause of that on, on a molecular level, or is it just we know that the virus is there and this is the sort of um, phenotype that this causes, or is there any, or, or is that future studies? <laughs> is to look at what's happening. <laughs> uh, so I think how exactly the virus interferes with the cellular mechanisms in order to yeah, impair the cellular function needs to be studied okay. for sure. Um, however, um, we need to keep in mind that the viral infection interferes with all the cellular functions. Okay. And if there is an impairment, the cell swells okay. and the cell can't process yeah, properly, basically, and uh, the bile uh, will not be produced in the proper way. So this is, in the first place, a sign of a liver failure. However, the molecular details, I think, need to be studied more in detail. This is something we look into deeper. What we could do uh, in parallel is to study the immune cells, which immune cells are uh, yeah, associated with the disease, and this is what we did. And there are the other pictures in which you have seen in the paper. Yeah that we uh, studied T-cells, B-cells, uh, MHC class 2 positive cells. So that's important to characterize next to the hepatic dysfunction on a molecular level, more also which immune cells are associated to get an idea what kind of immune re response or immune reaction do we have here. And this is what we also quantified to see what kind of cells are uh, coming if we have an infection with uh, AAB2. It was another part of the study, basically. Amazing. Um, and I think as, as well, um, t speaking about immunology for just a, a little bit, there was, there was something about the, and I'm going to get this wrong because uh, I don't have it written down. It's uh, H-L-A-D-R, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. DRB1-0401. DRB1-0401. And this allele is to do with, uh, and again, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe it's to do with antigen presenting to you know get your your immune system um, going basically whenever it meets a new pathogen. Uh, you'll have presenter cells which will engulf that presenter on the the MHC and then it'll be presented to other parts of the immune system. Uh, and you notice that this allele um, was present in I think it was about 89% of the uh, of the cases that presented with this. Um, and so I've done a little bit of research on it, and from what I can tell is uh, there, there's some association between that allele and potential autoimmune disorders. I noticed you also looked at different markers for autoimmune disorders, um, and it wasn't quite so clear what the connection there was. Has there been any further thoughts on that or any um, ideas as to where that connection might fit in at all? 
Yeah, I mean, as I said at the beginning, like autoimmune hepatitis is probably one of the kind of key differential diagnoses in, in children presenting with severe hepatitis, liver inflammation. Um, but we, the markers that we check, which there are a lot of them, which are we do routinely clinically, mm. none of them, you know, the children didn't really present with a lot of these autoimmune markers. So we felt that and um, the to say that, you know, we recruited patients all across Scotland and mm -hmm. each of the centres had a paediatrician or a paediatric gastroenterologist. So someone who specialises in liver disease in children. It's not me. I'm an adult <laughs> infectious disease doctor. But we kind of discussed all the cases that we recruited mm -hmm. with kind of paediatric um, gastroenterologists um, in Scotland. And they didn't feel that the, the presentation or the, the markers fitted with an autoimmune hepatitis. Mm. So there was a case series um, that was um, published in Scotland of children with autoimmune hepatitis. Most of them were positive for um, auto, uh, you know, autoantibodies, but also they tended to be older as well. Mm. So the age, the epidemiology didn't quite fit. So um, as part of the kind of wide battery of tests that we did for all the kids we looked at kind of whether host genetic markers mm -hmm. were important particularly as you know the numbers were relatively small mm -hmm. um you know because adenovirus infection it's fairly common in kids as is you know av2 we talked about actually majority i think about 80 to 90 percent mm -hmm. of adults have are serology positive for AV2, yeah. and we think that seroconversion happens in younger age. But why certain children? And to date, we've had 44 cases mm -hmm. in in Scotland and just over 270 cases in the whole country. Is it that you need to have some kind of genetic susceptibility mm -hmm. that makes you manifest severe hepatitis? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, they, they turned out that this allele was very overrepresented in the mm -hmm. cases, the um, HLA-DRB-0401, which I'm only going to say once, <laughs> <laughs> was present in 93% um, um, of the cases. So I think 25 out of 27 mm -hmm. cases that we managed to do the HLA typing for. And a lot of these HLA typing is, you know, there's geographical distribution. So mm -hmm. this allele is more common in, in North America and Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. and, and actually that fits with the kind of distribution of cases that have been reported wor worldwide. What you want to know is, is it something that in all people? Mm -hmm. um, and so what we did was we compared it to um, blood transfusion, you know, blood transfusion donors mm -hmm. um, and we actually find that the background prevalence of this allele is only around 15 percent mm -hmm. so it's likely that this allele has you know has implications and and you you know you mentioned that you you did kind of mhc class 2 staining mm -hmm. and there was definitely increased staining in the disease liver mm -hmm. um and it would fit with kind of a cd4 immune mediated mm -hmm. immune pathology and perhaps it's co-infection so First of all, we think that this is likely to be a viral co-infection. We know AAV2 can't replicate mm -hmm. by itself. It needed another virus, yep. which is, you know, adenovirus. We find adenovirus in a high proportion, but not all. Why do we only find it in smaller number of people? And a clue maybe, and this is purely what we're postulating, mm -hmm. is that, you know, because we take very detailed history from these kids, we find that over half of them present with a kind of gastroenteritic type illness mm -hmm. between one to 11 weeks before they present with a hepatitis. And mm -hmm. that's really important. We know that adenovirus, particularly the F41, causes severe, can cause severe gastroenteritis. Mm -hmm. And maybe they presented with adenovirus um, in, in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because we don't recruit them at, right at the beginning, yeah. we don't really know which one comes first um, and whether the AAV2 is reactivation or, mm -hmm. or, or primary infection. We think it's probably primary infection, um, given that a lot of them are IgM positive. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of age range that we see in under fives is usually the age that um, children tend to present. It may be that 
you know, with why why is it happening now? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a very important question. Or or yeah. last year, um, it's because we had very low levels of adenovirus for a long time, like all other respiratory viruses. Um, they were, you know, they had very low circulation levels because of all the mitigation measures yeah. we had in place to prevent COVID transmission. So the the kind of figure where we did the epidemic curve, you can see quite clearly that adenovirus, there was a huge spike of yeah. infection at the beginning of 2022. And that kind of epidemic curve really mirrored the hepatitis yeah. cases that we saw. And that kind of also kind of adds weight to this mm-hmm. kind of co-infection. But not only do you need the the viral co-infection, you also need to have this allele yeah. in order. It's So you have to have all three factors, a kind of triple hit phenomenon, yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to manifest this, this severe hepatitis. So mm-hmm. it's a really exciting finding. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think just to to go back to a point you just made there about the uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the and the lockdowns that we had, because um, I do know there, uh, and we just have to address the horse in the room, uh, the elephant in the room, because there was some speculation on Twitter that this was a core, you know, caused by lockdown, mm-hmm. um, which I think is is obviously not the case. This is shown otherwise, um, but I think there is maybe how do I say this? You've got these kids who have been in the house for two years not interacting, not picking up the usual viruses that are meant to when they go to nursery and play with all the toys that everyone's licked and slobbered over and all the rest of it and picking up these little things. And so suddenly these, you know, um, lockdown re- is relaxed and then they're all mingling again and then you're getting this spike in, a, uh, you know, adenovirus. Do you think that that's possibly why we saw this big spike all at once of, of five children coming together or, or is that... Um, yeah, probably. I mean, we looked back a number of years and we we hadn't seen that many. I mean, all these cases aren't controlled for the volume of testing that we did, mm-hmm. but um, we did see a huge peak in adenovirus infection that was about two weeks before we started seeing hepatitis cases. So the timeline fits. Um, compared to SARS-CoV-2, where we know there's been cases since mm-hmm. March 2020, and I know there's been a lot of people who felt that this hepatitis may be due to SARS-CoV-2 or maybe mm-hmm. kind of SARS-CoV-2 caused your immune system to, your immune system to react abnormally mm-hmm. to to another pathogen, for example, or some kind of co-infection. But we looked very hard for SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. So from the kind of routine clinical testing, only three of the children ha- were PCR positive and one of them was PCR positive after they were admitted to hospital. So mm-hmm. we don't think it's related. We don't think it's kind of direct SARS-CoV-2 related liver injury. We looked very hard on the metagenomic sequencing mm-hmm. and didn't find SARS-CoV-2 on the metagenomic sequencing. Um, and the, the other thing is we then look at the antibody response to SARS-CoV-2. You know, if it, we think that it played a part, then we should find very high antibody exposure. Mm-hmm. But we only found it in just over half of the cases that had um, antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 compared to the background prevalence of um, antibodies of for SARS-CoV-2 was, I think, between 59 and 72 mm-hmm. percent. So we didn't find higher antibody prevalence in, in our cases. So we think it's un- very unlikely, but as you say, it may be that just because of the kind of non-pharmacological interventions from mm-hmm. the pandemic and children not mixing, and generally they would all have over time gradually got adenovirus infection mm-hmm. or AAV2, and because you know, release of relaxation of these measures all happened mm-hmm. at the same time and people, kids and people started mixing that we got this huge spike of, of adenovirus infection. Um, and uh, a, a paper that was published quite recently from Emerging Infectious Disease, actually from an Irish um, uh, wastewater surveillance, right. illustrated <laughs> this really nicely mm-hmm. that they looked at... Um, uh, uh, wastewater from one treatment plant that I think covers 40% of the Irish population and they actually saw like again the spike of adenovirus and AAV2 Mm -hmm. around the beginning of 2022 you know which is completely separate from our study Mm -hmm. and so you know the fact that another setting saw this in a totally different way Mm -hmm. um, in wastewater 
which kind of illustrates the power of wastewater surveillance yeah, as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and also there's another um, paper that we think is coming out from Nature at the same time from from the from the UK HSA team mm-hmm. um, and and UCL led by Judy Brewer has also found very similar findings to what we found. So we think, you know, that all the evidence that we found relates very well with with other studies mm-hmm. as well. So is there anything else that's interesting about this allele that we've looked at, this HLA allele that's different in these uh, children who have presented with hepatitis? Because um, I think it's quite interesting that we have the same um, uh, HLA, DRB140, is also most prevalent in multiple sclerosis patients, and we are still unsure if it's a viral disease. It's interesting to see that we have virus infections um, which are more prevalent or more severe in some patients with a certain genotype. I think that's some aspect we um, can keep in mind for future research as well to to, uh, keep this in consideration when we study viral infection and why some populations or some people in the population um, show a more severe outcome than others multiple sclerosis is also quite prevalent in northern Europe, in northern uh, America, mm-hmm. in this uh, yeah, high latitude, low sunshine-ish countries, um, which I think is a nice coincidence to, to keep in mind, although um, yeah, causality is not proven, mm-hmm. but I think uh, this is where we might hi- make hypothesis to keep this uh, in mind. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, and one thing that really came across when I was reading this paper is this is it, it feels very collaborative between clinicians, between public health bodies, between people in academia, between researchers on the ground, um, you know, pipetting stuff up and down by informaticians. Um, how, how was this project for you as, as, a, as a collaborative thing? Um, yeah, I, I found it to be a very positive experience. I mean, I... First of all, as a kind of clinical epidemiologist, you know, I did a master's in epidemiology and and to kind of be involved in an investigation where you find, I mean, we're not saying this is the cause. We say mm-hmm. there's a very strong association mm-hmm. with, with AAV2 and adenoviral co-infection with this genetic susceptibility. But to be involved in a, um, a, a very comprehensive investigation that comes up with, you know, a, a good hypothesis is, is really cool very mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing yeah. and i was genuinely um i was just really impressed with how well you know public health investigation and that even within themselves you know there are people i i attended these incident management team meetings where there's people from scottish government from the, from public health but also from the laboratory people who are doing the epidemiology you know administering mm-hmm. ad- administering the questionnaire um and you know to all the clinicians around the country who were, you know, bending over backwards to help recruit these cases and the research staff who, t- you know, consent the patients mm-hmm. and and families to to take part in the study, allow us to, to do research tests to these to, you know, we have um, my biobank manager, Sarah McDonald's fantastic, and she's the one who receives all the samples and then passes it on to the genomics team to do the sequencing, um, to bioinformatician like Richard and the team who did all the analysis so quickly, um, and Vanessa and team looking at all the kind of immunohistochemistry and histopathology. Mm-hmm. It's been a really excellent collaborative effort, um, and I think driven by a really important research question mm-hmm. when you have this, in a way, it's, it was a small, you know, relatively small numbers, but it's a very severe presentation mm-hmm. in that, Absolutely. you know, but 5% of children requiring liver transplants and and children who are really sick requiring hospitalization mm-hmm. which is which is huge but uh, for me i think really great example of of collaborative research to answer to address a really important public health question mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys have anything yes. to add mm-hmm. yes uh, for me it was exciting because this kind of discovery research is what uh, what's all about in our work and this is a great fun and i really enjoyed it to be uh, part of this and being uh, yeah invited to to bring my expertise which is all about that we contribute with our work to do something better actually okay. and what i really enjoyed as well 
we have the chance to implement all the materials and techniques we have established over years before this and could plug it in relatively quickly to come to a solution, to come as close to, to the solution um, as we could go, because we had what you mentioned previously, all the layers of adding layers of evidence. So we are as close to the proof of Koch's postulate as we could go. And this is what I really like, that we did everything we could do um, to come as close uh, to the causality, although the causality is still uh, yeah, to be proven, but this is actually our discovery research, what makes it amazing that you work for years and then a study like this comes and you can instantly apply everything you have done yeah. previously to this and relatively quickly <laughs> it comes out and uh, can give information to the public, to the patients, to uh, inform people to be aware of what's going on here. Okay, thank you, Richard, how did you find that? I think there's, there's two extra things probably to say. One is, I can't actually remember having a meeting in person the entire, everything's done by a Zoom, <laughs> Zoom or Teams, which is pretty... Pretty amazing when you think back, like three years ago, if you said that, we're never going to meet in person yeah. to talk about it, you'd be crazy. But we, uh, it was all Zoom, and there's lots of other kind of groups involved as well. So going back to that first set of five samples, we, we were asked to sort of share the data like immediately straight off the sequencer. And we shared that with uh, public health bodies. So they were sort of essentially analysing at the same time, but then we had a meeting the next morning where we... And say, well, what did you find? What did you find? And we found the same thing, which is like really reassuring that, yeah. that you find the same thing, which means there's nothing wrong with your pipelines, your analysis, all that kind of stuff. And then there's people in Edinburgh and HLAs, and then mm -hmm. Judy's group as well. They ended up sequencing sometimes the same sample as well. It got sent, I think, down there, and then they were finding the same things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite reassuring when everyone kind of converges on the same, yeah. same result. Um, I think the Zoom thing is quite a I still find it quite surprising. <laughs> it, it just works. There was times when we were, half of us were in the building, so you can see that there were persons at their desk that were floor below, but you're still talking about Zoom. The Zoom really has been the hero of the past three years. Um, but no, because uh, again, that was one thing that really came across strongly in this is how it was like, okay, immediately we have a problem. Let's get everyone involved and everyone pitched in and basically did their bit. And as you say, built these layers upon layers upon layers of evidence to come to what I think is personally a really strong conclusion of this very strong association between the AAV2 and, and this um, hepatitis that was presenting in children. Um, so again, just want to congratulate you on the paper <laughs> and the project, because again, I think this was uh, fantastic to read. Um, and uh, with that, I just want to say thank you again for, for coming to yeah. be part of Research Goes Viral today. Um, if you just like to go around and then give your name one last time and then your uh, Twitter just say or where you can be found. Thank you as well. Um, I just want to thank oh. um, Public Health Scotland and the MRC for funding this work. Um, and also that, you know, the funding from the MRC was done with ISRIC, um, which is led by University of Edinburgh and University of Liverpool. So Callum Semple and, and Kenny Bailey, who kind of co-lead this. And, and this infrastructure is, mm -hmm. is really critically important to, to allow us to do all this work. And the work is not done. I think this is just mm -hmm. the beginning for us to really understand. And I, we would like to do more work to really understand the kind of immune response underlying mm -hmm. AAV2 infection. So we're, we're looking at kind of pursuing more funding opportunities with that. Cool. Um, and just as a one last thing, if you'd just like to go around and then uh, your name and where people can find you, um, where you'd like to be found. <laughs> Where I'm likely. To... Oh, right. Okay. Like um, yeah. <laughs> I'm to... yeah. I'm Tony Ho. My uh, Twitter handle is at Dr. Tony Ho. Uh, my email address is also available uh, on the CVR website as well. Yeah, my name is Vanessa Herber, and you can email me, obviously, with the Glasgow address or on LinkedIn. It's easy to find. My first and second name is the same, so you will find me there. Uh, my name is Richard Orton. Um, my Twitter handle is Richard J. Orton. Um, so once again thank you all for, for joining us today and thank you all for listening and we will catch you on next week's episode bye